Welcome to another episode of Facts, as we're getting into some of the important documentation that is not widely read in our history dealing with Irenaeus, a document we will be going through in quite detail, but also relating the importance of the information that is found in this. I am Stephen Boyce. I am your host. I am going to be looking forward to this episode. I've been putting it together for a while, studying one of the documents of Irenaeus that I believe to be widely ignored or just not known about, and that is called the Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. The reason for that is because this letter went missing. Uh, We had a little bit of information about it from Eusebius, who mentions it earlier in his ecclesiastical history, and it went missing in history for quite a while, and then it was found around 1904 in an Armenian church, and that Armenian church was the Blessed Virgin there in Armenia, and it was translated into uh, English, and then there have been some updated translations of that, which we will be using some of the work of that today. That manuscript also contains sections of his Against Heresies, book four, book five. My favorite is book three, but it wasn't in that uh, copy, uh, book four and five were. But this one I believe to be very important. We see a side of Irenaeus that we do not see in his Against Heresies, a part that's more pastoral, a part that is doing an exposition, particularly of the Old Testament. And I'm excited to get into some of the things that he says in those texts, correlating the Old Testament prophets, binding them into the understanding of Jesus and how his apostles understood and perceived those connections between the prophets and Jesus himself. Now let's talk about Irenaeus. Irenaeus has been mentioned on this program. I don't know how many times you've probably heard me mention him almost on a weekly basis as these podcasts are put out, but he was born probably around the time of 130, maybe a little bit earlier than that. We, we don't know the date of his death per se. Uh, some believe to be the end of the first cent- or second century into the earliest parts of the third. So he could have been alive between 130 and 200 born in Smyrna. Now, what's unique about Irenaeus is that he was raised actually in a Christian home. He was not one of those who was actually converted out of paganism to Christianity. His parents were, and from a child, he was able to hear the apostolic tradition. And most of that coming from his time as a student and a hearer of Polycarp of Smyrna. And Polycarp, being an important figure that has also been mentioned on this program, being a disciple of John himself, which we'll look at some statements in a minute from Irenaeus. But Irenaeus became the bishop of Lyon. Now, Lyon is in the area of France. He grew up in the east in Smyrna, but later traveled and became an apostolic bishop of an area in modern-day France. He states this in the writings, the lost writings of Irenaeus that were also discovered. He's writing to a friend named Florinus. Now, Florinus was influenced by Polycarp as well, but he appears to have fallen into the belief system of Gnosticism. Now, most of what Irenaeus combats is Gnosticism. He also saw the rise of Marcionism, and Marcionite work, 
and he combats Marcion's heresies and corruptions of the text of Paul and Luke. But predominantly, he focuses on the Gnostic belief system that is come into the church, contaminated the church, because he is still fighting that which John began to fight in his epistles. But he states this in the fragments of the lost writings of Irenaeus. He says, For I, while I was yet a boy, I saw you being Florinus with Polycarp, distinguishing yourself in the royal court and endeavoring to gain his approval. So he's reminding Florinus, he's like, hey, I know you've heard the truth. I saw you when I was a child in the royal court and you were trying to gain Polycarp's approval. He says, for I have a more vivid recollection of what occurred at that time than in the recent events. And as much as the experiences of a childhood, keeping pace with the growth of the soul became incorporated with it. So that I even describe the place where the blessed Polycarp used to sit and discourse, his going out too and his coming in, his general mode of life, and even his personal appearance, together with the discourses which he delivered to the people, and how he would speak of his familiar intercourse with John and with the rest of those he had seen who had seen the Lord. Now, here's what Polycarp is, or what he's saying about Polycarp here is this. Florinus, I, I remember as a child, you being there with Polycarp. As a child, I still remember these images and teachings in my mind. I remember his going out, his coming in, what he looked like. I could take you to the place where he sat and taught. I know you were there. That's what he's saying. And he would talk about his conversations with John and some of the other eyewitnesses. And how he would call their words to remembrance. Whatsoever things he had heard from them respecting the Lord, both in regards to his miracles, his teachings. Polycarp, having thus received information from the eyewitnesses of the word of life, would recount them all in harmony with the scripture. These things, through God's mercy, which was upon me, I then listened to attentively, treasured them up, not on paper, but in my heart. I am continually, by God's grace, revolving these things accurately in my mind, and I can bear witness before God that if by the blessed and apostolic presbyter had heard any such things, he would have cried out, stopped his ears, exclaiming, Oh, good God, for what times have you reserved me that I should endure these things? And he would have fled from that very spot where sitting or standing, he had heard such words. This fact too could be made clear from his epistles, which he dispatched, whether to the neighboring churches to confirm them, or to certain of the brethren admonishing, extorting them. The summary of this is this. Irenaeus is saying, listen, you were there with Polycarp. You know what he said. You heard his teachings. He testified to the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. He recalled things said about Jesus. He recorded them in his own epistles. You know this teaching is wrong. It contradicts the apostolic. And if you had any doubt, go to any of the neighboring churches to confirm this is what they were taught. This is what the text 
have stated. You have fallen into error, Florinus. And it goes against everything that we were taught. Now, this point is going to be substantial. Because within this point, we find that there's a chain of custody being built. That there was a protection from the teachings of Jesus to his eyewitnesses, to those who they trained, to those whose churches were started and the bishops that led them. There is an unbroken chain of custody to contain and maintain the apostolic traditional teachings of, the, of Jesus and his words and his teachings. And he's challenging Florinus to go to any of the churches that, that were taught by, by these, these apostles and find if they're teaching this form of Jesus that the Gnostics are teaching. We see something happening here. Now, Irenaeus was a great saint to many of the things that he taught we have today, thankfully. There are some that were lost, including the one that we are going to look at today. But in the early 1900s, a new discovery was found of a text that was probably originally written in Greek. Uh, but it was translated to Armenian. And hey, I'm just glad we have something that, that reflects the original writing. Now, after he died, Irenaeus uh, was buried... Uh, at the Church of St. John in, in that city there in France. Now, it was later renamed. It was changed to St. Irenaeus in honor of his life and his ministry. He was then buried in a tomb and his remains were put in it. But unfortunately, during the 1562 destruction of the Huguenots, they destroyed not only that area, but all of the uh, remains and the body there that would have been of Irenaeus as well. It's absolutely unfortunate what happened in that region. But he wrote a book. He wrote a writing called The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. And in this writing, he states a couple of things that I want to go over. In section three of this writing, he states, since faith is the perpetuation of our salvation. We must needs bestow much pains on the maintenance thereof in order that we may have a true comprehension of the things that are. Now, immediately I want to point out the fact that Irenaeus is not ever at any point in this writing or others saying that the Christian faith is blind. That we believe in something that is just faith in faith. He states that our faith, even in its salvific nature, has produced itself in realities. And the faith that we hold to is going to have to come about by perseverance, pain, and maintenance of it. So the Christian faith is not a blind faith, but it's not an easy faith. It's a faith that investigates. It's a faith that finds understanding. It's a faith that investigates and explores the things that are true. Folks, Christianity is based in reality. We are not blind to science. We are not blind to archaeology. We are not blind to history. We are not blind to the rules of philosophy. 
In fact, we believe the Christian faith is deeply rooted in all of these things and that there is no contradiction. There is a difference of opinion. There is a difference of theory. There may be a difference of philosophy in places, but we do not believe the Christian faith stands alone. The evidence is found in other factors. Now he goes on to say, now faith occasions this for us, even as the elders, who are they? The disciples of the apostles. This would be Papias, Clement of Alexander, or Clement of Rome, excuse me. Uh, Polycarp, who we've been talking about. Ignatius on last week's program. If you missed that, you can go back. They have handed them down to us. The occasions of faith, the traditions, the evidence has been deeply discussed by those who heard the apostles, passed down to us. First of all, it bids us bear in mind that we have received baptism for the remission of sins in the name of, of God the Father and in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was incarnate and died and rose again and in the Holy Spirit of God. And that this baptism is the seal of eternal life and is the new birth unto God that we should no longer be sons of mortal men, but of an eternal and a perpetual God. And that what is everlasting and continuing as made by God. Now, what we find here, and I don't really want to get into the theology here of the baptism, but what is noted is that a tradition has been passed on from the apostles to their day. And that it is their life has been changed by Jesus. Their baptism has changed them from sons of mortal men to sons of the living God. And that they have been associated in their baptism with the eternal creator, God himself. And that the evidence for his existence, the evidence for his creation, the continuation, the perpetual existence of God has always revealed itself. And now as believers, we are baptized into that God's existence, his evidence, his creation. And that our life as mortal men that is cursed has been reversed by the Son of God who came into mortal flesh, who resurrected from the dead. And his resurrection is evidence that life both in the body and in the soul, has been restored to the God of creation by Jesus himself. And our baptism has created an emblem of association and reality of who we are to God through Jesus. And that the Spirit of God brought the life and sealed us in it showing and pouring out on us through the baptism of water and the word. This covenant has been made. But this tradition has been passed down. Now, we see a similarity, to the, similarity there to what he said in the Lost Writings. When he was talking to Florinus, that the word they had received from the eyewitnesses it was the word of life, the logos, 
life-giving word through Jesus. How it was recounted by the apostles in their texts, the tradition and the text were both handed to those who heard the eyewitnesses. Specifically, he mentioned Polycarp. Here in the demonstration of the apostles' teachings, he's not just dealing with Polycarp, he's dealing with any of those that heard. He calls them the elders. Other writers like Tertullian call them apostolic men. They were not the apostles themselves. They were trained by the apostles. And he's stating in these texts, this tradition can be substantiated not just by those who heard the apostles, but the text the apostles gave them. So you have a tradition and a text that are harmonized and that you can go to the churches to find the consistency of which text they're reading and which traditions they're following. May I state, there is no variant between the churches of the apostles and their predecessors. There is no variant about whether we should be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Now, what happens in that baptism? There's some variant. The text they have, there are some textual variances, but the actual text they held were the same. They were the same. Now, later on in 41 of the apostolic teachings, he states this. His disciples, being Jesus's, the witness of all his good deeds and of his teachings and of his sufferings and death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven after the bodily resurrection. These were the apostles who after receiving the power of the Holy Spirit were sent forth by him into all the world and wrought the calling of the Gentiles. Now note what he says the apostles were testifying of his good deeds, which would involve his miracles, his teachings, his suffering and death, his bodily resurrection, his bodily ascension. These are the eyewitnesses. They were also commissioned and sent forth by the Holy Spirit into the world, showing mankind the way of life. And as a result, people begin to turn from their idols, from their fornication, from their covetousness, cleansing their souls and bodies by baptism of water and the Spirit, which Holy Spirit they, the apostles, received from the Lord. They distributed and imparted to them that believed and thus ordered and established the churches. Here's something that needs to be Noted, the churches have a testimony within themselves that they were a congregation called out of their own nation of paganism, ritualism, sensualism, fleshly desires and appeasement of those desires. 
living lawless. Something happened in those nations. Something happened in the nations of people where the apostles were sent by the physical bodily resurrected Jesus, by the empowerment of his spirit, where a unity universally began to happen. These pagans in this part of the world, these pagans in this part of the world, these polytheists in this part of the world began to chuck their gods, chuck their way of living and adapt and adopt to the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth and begin to experience power, change, newness of life and conform to the doctrines of Christ through the apostles' doctrine. It's amazing what happens here. There's a newness to these nations where they begin to fall under the same apostolic doctrine. These churches that were established by the apostles become the, the landmarks of the apostles' doctrine, tradition, and texts. These become the safe havens of the text. They are led by leaders and bishops who are trained by the apostles, like Polycarp, like Clement, like Ignatius, like Papias, like John Mark, like Timothy and Titus. These men begin to start these churches and people who knew not Jesus of Nazareth are just coincidentally all over the world coming to faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. And coming into a community with the Father, Son, and Spirit through the act of baptism and the commitment to the text of the eyewitnesses. This is how we do canonical work. How is it that the churches in North Africa and the churches in the East and the churches in Caesarea, the churches in Jerusalem, the churches in Antioch, the churches in Rome, the churches in Alexandria are rallying around the same four gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus and adhering to the doctrine of the apostles in which apostle went and started a church in that area, or their disciples. This chain of custody is beginning to link organically. In section 98, this, beloved, is the preaching of the truth, and this is the manner of our redemption. And this is the way of life, which the prophets proclaimed, and Christ established, and the apostles delivered, and the church in all the world hands on to her children. This, this, 
must we keep with all certainty, with a sound will and pleasing God, with good works and a right-willed disposition. See, to me, this is a powerful, powerful statement by Irenaeus in this chain of custody. He says, look, the preaching of the truth and the manner in which our redemption has come to us, we have a chain of custody through a message that is yet to be broken. The prophets proclaimed it prophetically. Christ fulfilled it. There is a correlation between what was said of Jesus before he ever came. He fulfilled things that only a correct prediction could have ever produced. And he, in the right time, right place, right moment, right people, right circumstance, brought it to pass. The apostles recorded and reported the things that Jesus said and did and fulfilled. And the churches in all the world have received these same testimonies. This, this chain has been handed to them. It's unbroken. It's consistent. It's connected. The proper, the proper legal sources have been brought into correlation. And the churches have passed these on to their children. There's an unbroken chain of custody between the process and prophecies that began the prophets and worked their way down to Irenaeus's day. They're not questioning whether they have Jesus's teachings. They're not questioning whether or not they have the truth. He says, we must keep it with certainty. We are confident in what we have. And in doing these things, we can please God with good works and a right will disposition because what we have is the truth. And we are redeemed in it, as he stated at the beginning. Irenaeus was under the teaching of Polycarp. As I read earlier, he remembered his teachings. He was attached. It changed his life. What they reported above about Jesus, and not just not just what they heard Jesus say, but as he states to Florinus, they wrote about it in their texts. He said, "You can find clarity in the epistles that were dispatched to the churches that will confirm them." Over and over in this program, folks, we have dealt with the fact that there was a broken, an unbroken, excuse me, chain of custody between the writer, the deliverer of this writing, the carrier, and the recipient. These letters continued through their daughters. These churches that are formed by them passed on and passed on and passed on and they're distributing 
from the time the apostles lived to the churches they started, the mother church, the bishops of those churches that were trained by the apostles themselves, taking their texts and their traditions and continuing to teach them to their daughter churches and their daughter churches and their daughter churches. And when we look at all the churches that were landed and, and began with the teachings of the apostles in the different parts of the world, they are utilizing the same texts and the same doctrine. Yes, they have different practices at times, different traditional approaches, but the message is the same. The gospels they use are the same. That is why Origen said the four gospels under heaven are unquestionable to the churches. Unquestionable. There's no dispute. Irenaeus later states there's four and no more and no less. There had to be four. This becomes essential in understanding how we got our text and why we can trust them. There was strategy. There was purpose. There was intentionality. There was preservation through this chain of custody. He says in line 95, For we have received the Lord of the law, the Son of God. And by faith in him, we learn to love God with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourselves. I, I, what I'm about to read to you is one of the most beautiful things. He's reflecting on these texts. He calls them the preaching of the truth. What I'm about to read to you was the previous statements to the last one I read in, in line 98, where he said, this is the preaching of the truth, the manner of our redemption, the way of life that the prophets proclaim Christ established the apostles delivered. Well, what was it? Here it is. We have received the Lord of the law. See, Irenaeus came to realize something about the text of the New Testament. The law was always pointing to the Lord, not to itself. As Paul said, it was our schoolmaster pointing us to Christ. Irenaeus, being on the other end of the fulfillment of these things, has now received not the law, but the Lord himself, who is of the law. He is the Lord of the law. And he explicitly names him as the Son of of God. And by faith in him, we learn to love God with all our heart and our neighbors ourselves. Now the love of God is far from all sin. And to love the neighbor worketh no ill toward the neighbor. Irenaeus looking at the texts, the testimony, the tradition, sees the truth of who Jesus was, the Son of God. He said, in receiving him, our lives are changed. When we accepted the Lord of the law, 
we began the process of faith that teaches and equips us to love God with all of our heart and how to properly love our neighbor as ourselves. Because what we've learned is the love of God toward us is so far from sin. And that when we love God, the sin in our life goes absent. When we love our neighbor as ourself, our sin with our neighbor goes absent. For where the love of God is, sin is gone. You see, something happened in these people. Something happened in all the churches. The practice of sin that no other religion, no other belief system, no other deity could remove or atone for. That is why he said in line 98, this is the manner of our redemption. We've been bought, folks, bought. Taken from slavery to free. And now in this love, we know how to love our neighbor and act in a way where no ill is given toward them. So he continues, wherefore also we need not the law as a tutor. Now he's not contradicting what Paul's saying. He's contextualizing this. Here's the context. Behold, with the father we speak and in his presence we stand. We have a relationship restored with the father and we stand before him. Not in sin, but in salvation. He says, being children in malice and grown strong in all righteousness and soberness. We've been brought before God in a state of sobriety and righteousness. That's what he's saying. For no longer shall the law say, don't commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. To him who has no desire at all of his neighbor's wife. Or thou shalt not kill. To him who has put away himself from all anger and enmity. You see, what he's saying is the law was there to tell us not to do things we want to do. But because of Jesus and what we've learned of him and become followers of, our faith has transformed our life and our actions so that when we have a desire change, we don't need a law that says don't commit adultery because our desires have been changed to desire only our own wives. We don't need a law that tells us don't kill because our desire toward our neighbor is not of rage and enmity to the point of wanting to kill. Something in us is changing. We are growing strong in righteousness and in sobriety. Our standing with God has changed the way we act and think to the point where there is no need of a law to tell us, hey, you shouldn't do that. Something in us is changing our desire to where we don't want those things. 
And thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's field or ox or donkey. That law is not needed to those who have no care at all for the earthly things, but he stores for himself heavenly fruits. So covetousness is not necessary to a person who's content with what the Lord has blessed them with in this life. And they have built their life around heavenly, eternal values, not earthly. To those who not need to have said to them, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. To him who counts no man his enemy, but all men his neighbor, and therefore cannot stretch out his hand at all for vengeance. Which, by the way, that law goes back to a slavery, slavery law, which in this reality has taught us in slavery, men in Jesus are not more important than others. Because no man is your enemy. Every man you encounter, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their language and background, no matter their country, no matter, no matter their social status, is your neighbor and should not be counted as anything less. But see, this is what's happening. This is why Paul, by the way, in the slavery discussion, and John Beasley and I did a debate on this with Kip Davis and Josh Bowen. We believe that the idea of redemption involved from the very beginning of the slave laws to redeem and restore people away from this kind of cultural practice and that the work of Jesus Christ and redemption that frees us all from sin frees the heart that wants to enslave man. You see, it's I'm all for abolishing slavery. We, we It needed to be done. But it doesn't solve the problem of slavery. It helps, it aids it, but it doesn't solve it. Slavery is a problem because man in his sin nature who is enslaved to his own his own sin will also enslave others. A man who is enslaved to his own sin will enslave others. That's the source of slavery. A law helps the byproducts. And again, we should have them. And thankful that we do. But it doesn't solve the problem of the heart. And see, that's what Jesus was going for. And with the law, Irenaeus, through the teachings of Jesus, has come to realize because of what Jesus did, every man is my neighbor. And I shouldn't never have to seek an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth and bring vengeance. I have no enemies because in Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, bond or free. We are one in Christ. He says it will not require ties of him who consecrates all of his possessions to God, leaving father and mother and his kindred and following the word of God. There will be no command to remain idle for a day of rest to him who perpetually Sabbaths, that is to say, who is the temple of God, which in man's body does service to God and in every hour works righteousness. Hey, we don't have to follow. We don't need to be told to Sabbath and rest. We don't need to be told to be givers. 
when we hold things in this life loosely, when we're resting in God's promises, when we're resting in the righteousness of Christ, when we're producing a life as in our body, the temple of God, true and acceptable sacrifices to the Lord, we rest in his work. For I desire, he says, and not sacrifice. He desires righteousness, not. He desires righteousness and mercy more than sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But the wicked that sacrifices to me a calf is as he who should kill a dog and offers, offers fine flour as though he had offered swine's blood. But whoever shall call in the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no other name of the Lord given under heaven whereby men must be saved. That of God, which is in Jesus Christ, the son of God, to which also the demons are subject and evil spirits and all apostate energies by the invocation of the name of Jesus Christ crucified under Pontius Pilate. It is here that Irenaeus has established a chain of custody that involves a tradition and a teaching and a text. Now, a lot of the tradition has died out. Over time, we've lost it because tradition was typically oral. And that is what Irenaeus remembered most of Polycarp. But thankfully, he wrote a lot of those down, but not all of them. So we should value and cherish these traditions. But I don't want us to get away from the chain of custody of the texts. The churches, the church became the pillar and the ground of the truth. It was an established landmark where the truth could be found. If you want to know the truth from Jesus, you had to get the report of the apostles because they're the only ones that heard Saul and testified to him. Well, where do I find those? Well, they started churches. And in those churches, they wrote texts reporting what they had seen, reporting what they had heard, reporting the truth of what they had been teaching all along. And they also wrote instructions on the churches on how to conduct themselves and to teach them their identity in Jesus. And it just so happens in all the churches in the world, they have surrounded themselves by the same doctrine of the apostles. And that all over the world, there's a movement of God bringing people to this resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. What would start a world-moving, world-shaking teaching that would take people in this part of the world, that part of the world, to come together under the banner of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, raised from the dead, who died for sin, who broke down the walls and barriers set between God and man and established unity and righteousness between God and man, empowering them through his spirit, atoning for them by the, by the blood of Christ, and establishing these called out assemblies to worship him and to continue to praise and acknowledge and admire the work and word of God from the teaching of the apostles by continuing to train the next church and the next church and the next church with these teachings and to hand down the texts that were handed to them. 
You see, they were guardians of the text and the tradition of the apostles. They wrote them down. But the text of the apostles, they did not write down. They transmitted and translated. Jesus said, teach them to observe, to observe all the things that I've commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of this age. The apostles then took it and taught it and wrote about it. And their, their disciples, Polycarp, Clement, Ignatius, Papias, others, took it, copied it, held it dear, and talked about what they learned from the apostles. And they turned and taught it to their disciples, handed them the texts, and verbally shared the tradition. So here's what happened. The text and the tradition carried on in the churches. The text remained the same. The tradition slightly altered at times. Or the interpretation of the tradition. We have the texts. I think about the church at Carthage in North Africa. As new texts came in which is what Irenaeus dealt with, like the Gospel of Judas and Mary, Thomas, Peter, all these other texts. How is it that the churches knew to reject the same ones and accept the same ones? How, how, how is that possible? How did they do it? They didn't have Skype. They didn't have video chat. YouTube, email, something, a mirac something of a miraculous nature happened. The churches began to accept the same texts and reject the same text. Although there were a few in question, and if you've missed any of those programs, there were very few that were in question. We talked about why they were in question, and they were understandable. You can go back into this program and go look them up. Most of them are going to be based around 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, Jude, James, Revelation, and maybe in one area, Hebrews. Gospels, Acts, Romans, never questioned. And many more. And we talked about the questions in those programs, and, and you need to go back and listen to them if you're still uncertain and hear the full story from these men who are writing about their questions. But as a whole, I think of Carthage dealing with these texts. They write a letter to the church at Rome, making sure that the texts that were traditionally handed on to them, and I want you to hear the quote, because it's not about the ones we picked. They never say the ones we chose. They never said the ones that this church chose or that church chose or this council picked. Never. These are the books that have been passed down to us. And then they had a list of New Testament texts. They sent the list to the church at Rome. The church at Rome responds back, and confirms with the churches of North Africa, we have the same text 
of the New Testament canon. Folks, those those books were the same 27 New Testament books we have. Oh, well, they must have just met together and picked them. No, they didn't. The, the churches of Carthage stated these were passed down to us. They were handed down to us. From who? The bishop before them. The bishops before them. That go all the way back to the apostles who started those churches because these are the same churches the apostles started. Polycarp did this. Polycarp did this with the, the book of Philippians. He challenged, and we'll get into Polycarp. He challenged the Philippian church to go back and read Paul's letter to them. Now, this is about 70 years later, 70 to 80 years after Paul wrote to the Philippians. Some would say it's later than that. Fine. My point is made even more. <laughs> These writings they attested to as the apostles' writings, and they assumed that the churches still had the texts. Let's say Polycarp 70, 80 years after Paul wrote to the Philippians. Polycarp writing to the same church challenges them to go back, read what Paul wrote to them, and in doing so and obeying it, it would increase their faith. What did Polycarp come to recognize? That the apostolic text from Paul was one supernatural in nature. It had the power from the Spirit, to take these people and grow their spiritual faith. Second, he assumes the text of Paul to the Philippians is still in the church. Whether it was the original autograph or not, we don't know. Papyri lasts anywhere from 100 to 120 years if taken care of. It's possible they have the original autograph or a very close copy, but they were protecting it. It was still in their church. It didn't go missing. They were still reading it. They were still teaching from it. They were still obeying it. And Polycarp defers his authority to Paul's in that text. And that happened to the people that Polycarp trained. Hmm, who's that? Oh, our guy, Irenaeus. Where did Irenaeus learn that then? Oh, that's where he learned it, from Polycarp, like he described in his epistle to the Philippians. You see what's happening? This is what, this is what Polycarp did, which Irenaeus learned from him and is now teaching us. And his gen next generation, and their next generation. That these texts were received by the apostles, by those that heard the apostles and passed down, and they were the standard of faith in the church. That's why the universal church surrounds themselves under the same God, the same Lord Jesus, the same death, burial, and resurrection, and baptism, the same spirit, because he is uniting them without variant. We have an unbroken chain of custody from the prophets to Jesus, to the apostles, to their hearers, to the established churches, to the text we have today. They were not debating Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Oh, I don't know if this is from them. All the churches had it. 
as the apostles' teachings of Jesus. They're not anonymous. That's why it's, well, you don't see Matthew and them on it until Irenaeus and Tertullian and Papias. Well, yeah, where do you think they got that from? Just made it up? It just so happens that these people in this part of the world had the same original source materials to who wrote them as these people all the way over here. That guys like Petronius end up going to India and they already have a copy of Matthew's gospel with his name on it. Nowhere near Alexandria, Egypt, nowhere near Caesarea, nowhere near Antioch, nowhere near Rome, yet they're all saying it came from Matthew's source. These people didn't know each other from Adam. They had no correspondence. Yet the same text with the same authors behind the text are attributed to every area where Christians surrounded themselves in a church around the same texts. And their story of where they got them is the same original source. This is why Irenaeus said we should hold with certainty and confidence and faith to these teachings and pass them on. 2,000 years later, I'm, I would say it did a good job. Oh, we've got problems, but it did a good job. The churches are still remaining and multiplying. Something miraculous happened 2,000 years ago, folks from Jesus of Nazareth. This is Irenaeus. This is the demonstration of the apostolic preaching. What does it teach us? It teaches us that the bishops who knew the apostles were set as guardians in these churches of the apostolic text, number one, and the traditions, number two. And we are thankful for the traditions that have been maintained through these writings like Irenaeus, Ignatius, and Polycarp, and others but more importantly, the traditions are great, and I wish we had more of them. But what didn't expire due to oral tradition is the tradition of the apostles that made it to texts. Those texts did not go out of date. We have copies and copies. We have over 5,300 in Greek. We have over 20,000 in ancient translations from Latin, to Old Church Slavonic, to Ethiopic, to Coptic to Syriac, we have multiple attestations. We have, from the time of these men to the Reformation, over a million quotes of the church fathers, reconstructing almost an entire New Testament, save a handful of verses. That's more than any religious ancient work at any point in history. I'm confident and the apostolic tradition of the text that we have, because they have been preserved and protected, number one, by God, but in his wisdom in entrusting his disciples with the teachings and their wisdom from the Spirit to pass it down the way it was done through succession. And it worked. It outlived all the other texts of its day. It outlived all the other works in vast universal transmission. We have a reliable tradition of the apostles through 
the texts, and even what survived some of their traditions. Folks, I, I trust that you see that and that you would embrace that. There's somebody that's listening with a little bit of hesitancy. I understand it. But folks, this is a rock solid argument. This is an unbroken chain of custody that cannot be refuted and disposed of without dishonesty. Or, or I'll give the benefit of the doubt, ignorance or misinformation. I trust this will be good for you. I trust the Lord will use this. And I trust the Lord will bless you with these episodes. And as we continue to go through them, may you continue to pass them on and share them with others as this ministry grows with facts. Grace and peace to you.